Amen. Once again, good morning. Uh, if you just walked in, my name's Derek, and I'm the pastor here. Um, great singing, by the way. It's the great thing about like just a piano day. You can hear you guys go for it. So, or back off, one of the two. So, um, <laughs> myself and a bunch of other people from this church were out west this past week. And when I say out west, I mean just almost to Alabama. Um, and we were working a week of high school camp out there, and the band that we had for that week was the loudest thing I've ever heard. And so I was handing out earplugs to the adults at the door, like bulletins, you know, like, here you go, here you go, here you go. And, uh, but it was fun, so it was kind of nice to come back and just like, uh, so that's that. Um, here's the thing, like, we're going to finish up this uh, season of teaching on hardship and suffering uh, which is a reality for all of us. And my plan today was just to jump right into the, to the text, uh, which we will in just a moment. I didn't like to have this opening story. I didn't have this thing that I was going to sort of, you know, wow you with in the beginning. And uh, we were just going to get right into the passage and sort of dig into it and figure out uh, how it applies to us. And then this happened to me. I dropped my phone. And uh, have you guys had this happen before? So here's the little backstory for you. I was the guy, this is a year old, you know, I was the iPhone owner that didn't put it in a case, right? Irresponsible, yes. Um, And so, like, I just put it in my pocket, threw it in the bag, whatever. And I'd even dropped it a few times over the last year, and it was just fine. You know, it was just fine. But uh, the irony is my son bought me um, an Angry Birds iPhone case, which is on the backside, just like for Father's Day. And then I drop the phone. And, like, the thing about the iPhone is when you drop it, like, sometimes it doesn't break, but sometimes it's like a bone. Like, you just hit it just right, and it just, it, it just shatters all over, the, all over the glass. See how I, see the ad for the mix, by the way? You see what I did there? <laughs> just making sure you guys remember that. Um, so, at any rate, so here's the thing. I mean, like, I dropped this thing, and it landed face down, so I, I knew. You know what I mean? Like, so I, I reached down and picked it up. So the other part of the story is my wife, who has taken care of her since the day she got it, like she wrapped it in steel, you know. <laughs> um, hers broke like months ago, and she was so angry that mine didn't break, that mine is still uncased. I'm renegade. I'm going solo, freestyle. It's just I don't even care. I'm throwing it on the couch. And hers was encased and ensconced in this like steel, and it broke. And so when this happened, I texted her, and I was like, it's broken. It's beautiful. And uh, so she was, she was mourning with me, but yet also really excited about that. <laughs> but, uh, but here's the thing, like, if, if you, whether you're an Android user or you've got an iPhone or whatever, like, your whole life's on there. You know what I'm saying? Like, your communications. I got books on here. Uh, all the photos. My music is on there. Uh, all my Bibles are on there. Like, that's pretty much what I use. Like, I text from there. I take pictures from there. Uh, I phone call people from there, whatever that is anymore. Um, <laughs> it's like this weird backroom app on the phone. You can actually dial it and talk to people. It's crazy. Um, anybody have Voxer, by the way? Have you downloaded that? It's basically, it basically turns your uh, uh, iPhone into a Nextel. So a bunch of us had that downloaded, and I was like, isn't this just calling people? Like, so maybe that's where we're headed. It'd be kind of a nice full circle. But uh, all that to say, like, it's certainly, you know, something that I lean heavily on in many parts of my life. And now, until I figure out what the next step is and getting it fixed or just getting it replaced or whatever, I pretty much have to walk around with this obvious injury to the phone, Right? 
And it reminds me that like, even though it's a whatever, a three or $400 thing, it's still just a piece of glass, which I find a terrible idea, whoever came up with that. Um, let's just sell a $400 piece of glass because it's fragile. And at the end of the day, it's very, very breakable. And so now I have this reminder, at least until I get it fixed or replaced or whatever, that this thing isn't all, you know, it's not immune to getting broken, right? Now, maybe a lame story to get into where we're going, but I think it's a pretty good picture of what we've been talking about over the last few weeks, that all of our lives are fairly fragile, they're breakable, and that life itself, when it pushes on us, it can cause suffering. And some suffering, as we said, in our lives is simply just the result of the broken world that we live in. Like there's just things that happen that are out of our control, but it impacts us and it causes suffering, but it's not necessarily our fault. We just have to sort of deal with it. And then there's other suffering that comes at our own doing. Like there's this self-inflicted kind of stuff. Like we put ourselves in debt. We make terrible uh, decisions in relationships and so on. And we just can't really blame anybody but ourselves in that. But either way, whether suffering is just a product of the world we live in or it's stuff that we've done to ourselves, it's still a reality for everybody, right? I mean, none of us in here doesn't carry around the marks of some sort of, you know, difficult time uh, in our lives. And it's just going to be a natural, normal, assumed part of life. Watch what Jesus says in um, John 16, 33. He says, in this world you will have what? Trouble. So this is, uh, and there's the Greek there for you, pressure, trial, oppression, etc. Um, this is basically one of the greatest things Jesus said, but also just a very troubling thing. Like, it's good to hear this from Jesus. It's good to hear that it's not just all rosy, and at the same time, it's not something we want to hear from Jesus. And he's saying this to his disciples, and it's basically this promise that, hey, look, in this world, there's just going to be stuff that happens that's just not going to go your way. And so for us, reading a a statement like that from Jesus sort of challenges us, and I challenge you as a pastor to exit any conversation that entertains freedom from trouble. Just bail. Because the Bible doesn't even promise that. The Bible does not promise escape from suffering, and neither does God. And whether we excel in living the right kind of life that God desires or not, suffering will just be a normal thing for all of us. Another thing that Jesus said in Matthew 5, 45, just saying, listen, he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, right? It rains on the just and the unjust. A poetic way of saying it just, stuff just happens. And the story of Job has often been seen and read as simply a picture of that truth that bad stuff happens to every single person, good or good or evil. And the Bible never really deals much with the question of why bad things happen to us, why bad things might happen to good people. The, the humor in it is it actually deals with the other question is why do good things happen to bad people, which is always a question we want answered. But it doesn't necessarily deal with why bad things happen to good people. It just kind of assumes that suffering and hardship is just a part of life. But what the Bible does give us is some wisdom, some direction, some you know, some details on encountering and moving through suffering. And that's really what we've been talking about over the last several weeks together. We've been in this New Testament 
letter called 2 Corinthians. It was written by Paul right in the middle of the first century. He planted this church in the city of Corinth. He stayed there for a year and a half, and then he left. And while he was gone, he started to undergo all kinds of problems. He was getting beaten up, put in jail, almost killed. Uh, He keeps score of this in other letters, by the way. He tells you exactly how many times he's been hit on the back. It's pretty amazing. But Paul basically went through a very difficult time. It was still going through a difficult time. And the people of Corinth had heard about this. And one of the ways they heard about this is there were these traveling teachers that came through and they set up shop in this new young church in Corinth and they began to sort of teach this kind of new thing or this false thing to the people of Corinth, these new Christians, these new believers. And they said, listen, if your boy Paul is suffering, if he's going through all this hardship, then his credibility is on the line. And they began to believe this, like his ministry, his leadership, his apostleship, and even his faith was all in question because he was undergoing such great difficulty. I mean, basically, if you're suffering, then God must be upset with you. This is sort of the way they had come to believe. But that's not such a stretch, particularly in the Greek and Roman culture, when it's like, well, the gods must be angry with you. This was very normal for them. And this is how we often process suffering as well. It's our first knee-jerk reaction, like, what is God doing to me? And Paul was writing this letter as a defense of himself, saying, look, just because of what's happening to me doesn't have anything to do with what's happening inside of me, because stuff just happens to us. But he was also writing this letter as a way to reconcile with these people that he invested in, and as a way of teaching on this subject of suffering, because clearly they needed to be educated in this as well. So most of the letter just deals with this topic of suffering. And so today, what I want to do is walk through this final passage together. It comes from 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. If you have a Bible, just turn there. Uh, We'll put a few verses on the screen that I really want to zero in on, and uh, we'll sort of get through this together uh, and, and hopefully learn some things and be encouraged by some things as we go. So this is the final, this is the final say in this Uh, in this season of teaching. The first verse, verse 7, says, you can see it on the screen, so to keep me from becoming what? This is Paul saying, to keep me from becoming conceited, becoming arrogant, becoming holier than thou, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, which I'll explain in a moment, a thorn, there's the Greek word, I don't really put a definition there because that's a perfect translation. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming what? conceited. So here's, the, here's how it begins. Paul says, so to keep me from becoming, or at least in my own head, like to believe my own press, that I'm better than everybody else. And then he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the what? The revelations. Now let me explain this because it could be sort of like confusing because that's just kind of thrown in there. But here's what was happening, and this is just a small piece of the, the context for you. Um, these traveling teachers that came through Corinth and set up shop in this church and began to take over leadership. It was a very common thing for people to sort of self-appoint themselves, uh, self-appoint, I guess that's all you need to say, Um, as leaders, as authorities in the scriptures and in the gospel story. Now, Paul in the 11th chapter is really sort of funny. He calls these these people out, and he gives them this name, the super apostles. It's almost like this critical, like, oh, the super apostles in your midst, right? So I just think that's kind of funny. Um, He's talking trash to these people. But one of the things that these super apostles would do, not just in Corinth, but in any place they went to, is they would share these stories of great visions they had from God. 
They would come into these communities and they would say, we are apostles and here's some of our proof. And one of those things would be that, hey, we've had these amazing visions and uh, words from the Lord, right? And these young Christians would be like, tell us, tell us about that. We want to hear about your experience with God on this other level. And most of the time they weren't true at all, but they would just come in and say, man, we've had this amazing vision from God. We're always a little suspect when people come in off the street and talk to us and say, hey, I just want to talk to you. Are you the pastor? Yes. Well, I've had a vision from the Lord. I was like, okay, here we go. And so Paul calls these people the super apostles with their vision. And Paul doesn't really defend himself except for right here in terms of giving an example that legitimizes his situation. And Paul says, I actually had a vision. And so the verses two through six in our chapter are this description of this revelation, this vision that Paul had. And just to be honest with you, it's completely mind-bending. It's like a head trip. Like when you read it, you're like, I don't know what's going on there. It seems really strange. It feels out of place. It's just awkward. And even Paul himself says, I have no idea what this means. Like I was just caught up in this. And he says it happened 14 years ago, so it's not even like yesterday. Like these super apostles are coming and go, just yesterday, I got a vision from the Lord. Well, Paul just throws insult to injury and just says, hey, 14 years ago, this happened to me, and it still doesn't make any sense to me. But it was incredible, incredible. And so he recognizes that in his own life, that was a very real thing, whereas the people that were in Corinth, it wasn't very real to them. They were using it as leverage to gain authority. So Paul shares this vision just in a few verses. And then he says, but to keep me from becoming a person who thinks that that matters above and beyond everything else, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A thorn. Spiritually speaking, all of us can get to the point where we do start to wonder if we're progressing out of depravity and into a more perfected state in our relationship with God. All of us can get to that place where we start believing again our own press in a personal superiority over those who themselves may be behind us in their pursuit of God or in their relationship with God. And Paul says to keep me from ever becoming that person, God has allowed me to have this thorn Now, Paul doesn't detail this out for us. Like, there has been so much discussion through the centuries about what was Paul's thorn in the flesh. I've heard everything from, I read some historian, that he was dead sure that this had to do with Paul's allergies. That's exactly what I did. Ripped that page out of the book. I mean, he had proof. Like, he suffered from sinus infections, right? And then it goes all the way to the other end of the spectrum where he just had great sexual problems and everything in between. But the thing is, like, we can only guess because Paul doesn't even mention it. He just says, I got this thorn. He doesn't seem to think it's that important for us to know. But it's the picture that makes more sense. The thorn, I don't know if you've ever walked around with a splinter in your hand, but it's kind of annoying. You can't even focus. I mean, you might be in the best movie ever and you're like, dang it. You know, it's, you're in pain and the salt from the, the Coke or the whatever, the popcorn gets in there and you're just frustrated. You can't even focus on what you're doing. Everyone around you is frustrated with you because you're just asking for tweezers and nobody has tweezers, <laughs> right? Are you with me on that? This is a great picture 
of what it's like to have this thing about you that is messed up, it's flawed, it's imperfect, it takes your, it takes your attention off of what matters and you're just focused on this thing. This thorn is a reminder that something isn't right. It's an annoyance. And for Paul, perhaps it was physical, perhaps it was emotional, perhaps it was painful in both of those arenas. But there's also this, when you have this thorn, whatever it is about you, you're very self-aware of it. And with that comes the desire to conceal it, which we're very good at. We work very hard in our lives to hide whatever isn't perfect. Social magicians, you know, like working these interpersonal sleight of hand movements, diverting people's attention away from what isn't perfect about us and onto something better about ourselves. And Paul says, I got this thing about me that just reminds me that I'm not all that perfect. And then he says, a messenger of Satan. We were laughing backstage. This is the first time Satan's come up all year. Like, this is just, and it's just straight in, like a messenger of Satan. Y'all don't think that's funny. but. (laughs) But let me add some power to what Paul is saying, because we can just sort of slip over that and think, okay, man with a pitchfork and horns, and he's red. But the word Satan, or the word Satan, is not a name. It's a position. It's a courtroom name. It's, a, it's, it's the prosecutor. It's a title for the accuser whose job it is to prove guilt. Some versions say, or it's better probably to say the Satan, because again, it's not a name. It's an action. It's a position. It's a thing that's happening to you. It's not so much a proper person as it is a position of prosecution. This is why some versions will say the accuser, and that is much stronger, or the enemy. Their goal is for you to fail and for you to fall. And it's a strong word for Paul that this thorn, whatever it may have been, acted as a constant reminder that he was not all that he ever imagined himself to be. It stood as an accusation against whatever good there was to him. I don't know if you experience this, but if you ever have to confront somebody about whatever, whether it's work-related or spiritual or just relational, like maybe you're heartless and that's your spiritual gift and it doesn't bother you to do such things. But for the rest of us who struggle with confrontation, it's often because the moment we have to make that step and have that confrontational dialogue with somebody, we are reminded that, you know what, we're not perfect either. And that's good takes the edge off. It brings in empathy to the conversation. Does that make sense? And so Paul is saying, I got this thing that if it wasn't there, I'd be the most arrogant, self-righteous follower of Christ there ever was. But to keep me from becoming that, God has allowed this thing, whatever it is, to remain a part of my life. Look at verse 8. I love this verse. Three times I pleaded, and there's the word, and we'll go over that in a minute, with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So Paul, this is the part of the passage that we all get because we're fairly good at asking God to take things away from us. That's not a problem for us. This is why churches that preach a message of a life free of pain are full with people. This is why books about ridding your life of troubles are bestsellers. None of us wants to remain in some sort of state 
of suffering and so on, at least not for too long. Like, okay, I get it. I've learned my lesson. Let's move on. And we find here Paul praying to God three times. Say that. Three times. I, I pray for things to get out of my life like thousands of times. Three. There's nothing significant here. It's just a number. Paul's like, I gave it three chances. He must be type A. It's like, that's all I'm giving God three times. Three times he prayed for God to take it away. It says he pleaded with God. This word parakaleo is the same word that Jesus used to describe the role of the Holy Spirit. It's a comforter, a counselor. He, he comes alongside us. And so Paul was essentially begging God to be a stand-in for him in this situation. And then look at God's response. This is the first time that God speaks in the letter, and this is uh, verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, right? That my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, for me, there may not be a more powerful word from God. I mean, here's Paul begging God to take away all his problems and imperfections, these flaws, this thorn, these reminders of his brokenness. And God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, we can misinterpret that and say, oh, sweet, it's a license just to fail. It's important not to interpret this as a resignation to our brokenness and sin. We're not to throw our hands in the air and say, oh, well, I'll never, I'll never uh, conquer this behavior. And I've prayed three times about it, so I'm just going to forget about it. I'll just be this way. There's a balance in working hard to live the right kind of life as faithful children of God and the grace of God to go through failure. We don't abuse it. We just lean on it. And we are to fight to be faithful to what God calls us to be knowing that his grace does allow failure. But before we smile too big at this phrase, let's look at what God essentially says to Paul. This is a great phrase. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's a lot of words to simply say, uh, Paul says, I prayed three times about this to God, and God said, no. 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 That's not the answer we want. I mean, Paul's pleading with God to remove this thing from him. And God said, no, it's yours. Which opens our eyes to the reality that God may say the same thing to us. Does that make sense? It's hard to warm up to the idea that whatever it is that may be broken about us, may, at the end of the day, always remain broken. Some people say, hey, what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. But the reality is that sometimes what doesn't kill you gives you a limp. It makes you look different. It injures you. Maybe you'd rather have been dead. It's not easy to get our minds around personal entropy when our world is always finding new ways to push back decay. And it's hard to imagine that we may always struggle with doubt. And it's hard to imagine that we may never see the end of family dysfunction. 
It's hard to conceptualize that the rest of our lives would be plagued with lust, anger, greed. It is not easy to feel confidence or settled with no promise from God of escape from fear or depression or sickness or loneliness or whatever condition it is that we're in. We would much rather God take everything away about us that's broken so that we don't have to walk around with this obvious injury reminding everyone else in our lives that we're fragile. N.T. Wright said, God's power and human power are not only not the same thing, often the second has to be knocked out of the way altogether for the first to shine through. And this is what Paul is saying. I asked God to take this away, but he said no, and it is essentially so that I will never become conceited so that I may be used for him in a gracious way. And so I hate to say it from the stage, but you may live the rest of your life with whatever it is that you're struggling with. But we're reminded that even so, his grace is sufficient. That that's not how God's keeping score. Failures and successes. Suffering, be it physical, relational, emotional, spiritual, or all of those, is real for everybody. And all God asks of us is faithfulness, and endurance, the drive to conquer what we can, to keep putting one foot in front of the other, to work hard at living the life he desires. And when we come up short, when we encounter brokenness, when we are reminded of our own frailty, it's in those times that we remember these words that Paul has shared with us, that God's grace is sufficient for whatever about us is insufficient. Make sense? Here's what we've learned over the last several weeks together. We started this journey off saying God makes his home in broken people. That's kind of a nice amen. Like wherever we are, like God is just at home in us. In week two, we talked about how in the midst of suffering, it's very important to maintain the behaviors of faith. Like not to give up on devotion and prayer and community and whatever. And then in week three, we were reminded through this passage about new creation that God is still at work within us when nothing else is working around us. Like whatever's happening to us or around us, God's still working in us, and we can't forget that. And then the week after that, we talked about when we're at the crossroads of faith, endure. Endurance is key. Like we don't fall prey to some lesser thing to numb the pain. And then last week, we looked at this Very strange command when it came to suffering that in the midst of suffering, do not grow weary in doing good, serving. Because when we're suffering, we often get very self-absorbed. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't grow weary in doing good. And then today, that God's grace is stronger than anything about us that's broken. Right? I want to close this out where we started six weeks ago with this picture. I don't know if you were here for this, but um, this is a picture of the great Stevie Ray Vaughan's guitar. He's passed away, uh, has passed away since, but so it's kind of enshrined, you know, this is obviously a picture taken through a window, but I mean, just look at that thing. It's just a piece of junk, right? And what I shared with you uh, that very first Sunday is 
the beauty of the music that comes from something so damaged. That is so divine. And like if you had $3,000 and you walked into Maple Guitars today after church and said, give me the best electric guitar you got. And they bring this out and open the case and you look at that, you would say, I don't think so. I mean, the wood's chipped out of it. It's rubbed down. It's obviously in bad shape. I need something with a warranty. Right? Does that make sense? But the paradox in the photo is the beauty that comes from such damage. That's the thing. And all God asks of us is that we just keep it stringed and tuned and he'll make the music. Because eventually it does, it's, it's not about the guitar. It's about the musician. Does that make sense? So we'll leave it at that. Let's celebrate communion together, which is in and of itself a wonderful reminder of uh, the suffering of Jesus, the passion of God's Son for the freedom of us all. So I'm going to say a prayer, and then at the end of that, you can take your time and make your way to one of the four tables. Grab the bread, grab the juice. You can take it back to your chair if you'd like and reflect, or you can take it at the table. It's up to you. And then we'll sing a song together uh, before we leave. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the last six Sundays. Just a really tough road. And you have done some great things in the lives of people who are right in the middle of some of the most terrible times. And Father, we pray that um, you continue to grow this church into a community that knows how to take care of people and that can encourage people through difficulty. And God, as we try and do life together, circled up around your word, around your promises, around your faithfulness, that we will be encouraged day in and day out. God, thank you for someone like Paul whom you used to do amazing things, and yet he was just a broken guy like all of us. And God, help us never to judge people's lives based on what is happening to them, but to judge their hearts based on what you're doing in them. And God, remind us of the same thing, that whatever is going on in and around us, that you're always at work in us. Give us the strength to trust you, to be faithful, to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And we look to your son as the example. And so as we celebrate this communion together, uh, I ask that you just encourage us in these moments. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.